This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome back to Money Markets. I'm Dan from Shares and with me is Laura from AJ Bell. Hi there. This week we go stateside and look at how markets are faring in the US. We look at the chance of investors being taxed more, give a little update on property funds and check out the latest inflation figures. We also talk to a veteran investor in small companies about how he's navigated the COVID-19 crisis. So let's start with a bit of a market update from you, Dan. So lots of people will have forgotten in the current pandemic that there's actually a US election happening this year. And normally that would dominate the news for months and months. But is it starting to have a bit of an impact on markets as it creeps closer? I think it is just bubbling away in the background. And I think in the coming weeks, you're probably going to be finding people paying much more attention to it. So, so at the moment, everyone is looking at the US because the corporate earnings season has started again. So we've had first quarter earnings growth, which was much worse than expected. So the, the consensus was that earnings were going to fall by just under 7%. And actually what happened that they fell by 15%. So that led to analysts really reducing Q2 expectations. So th- this is clearly a period where the world was in lockdown and you're seeing you know, the, the, the proper sense of what, what's happening with businesses that are either functioning at um, sort of low capacity or, or not at all. So the consensus is for a 44.6% drop in earnings for, for Q2. So it's a low bar to beat. So therefore, any, any stock that comes out and says, um, yes, we've had a fall in sales, but actually it's better than the market's expecting, could potentially see a share price jump. So we're starting to see the first names coming out now. And I think over the next sort of couple of weeks, the market will be focused on this and then they'll get to the election. So so of, of the companies that have already reported, just as we're um, recording this podcast, PepsiCo um, has come out and said that, you know, surprise, surprise, we've all been eating loads of snacks during lockdown. Um, so it's done very well there. Drink sales have been a bit lower because it hasn't been able to sort of um, feed its products into to restaurants because they've all been or pretty much been shut. Um, among the banks, we've had JP Morgan come out with some sort of strong trading revenue, but actually there's a, there's a billion dollar provision for bad loans. And Wells Fargo has had a near 10 billion provision for, for bad loans then. It has actually reported its first quarterly loss in a decade. So in the banking sector, it was always going to struggle, I think, um, but the fact that they're putting this money aside for um, you know, expecting to have you know, bad debts happening shows that um, we really are not past the worst um, for the impact on um, economy, for, for, for businesses as well. And you know, we've been talking about um, on the podcast in the last few weeks about how when the furlough scheme or, or the equivalent in other countries comes to an end, actually you'll probably see a rise in unemployment then as well. It'd be interesting to know how they've calculated that setting aside a, a billion because so much is still uncertain, like you said, and um, it's kind of unknown the impact that it will have on individuals and on businesses and the level of people that won't be able to pay their debts. So it's quite interesting that they both set aside similar amounts of money, but that 
that must be based on on kind of partial data, surely. Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't got the exact details in front of me, but I imagine in these sort of scenarios, they look at perhaps the industries that they've led to, and um, clearly, if you know, the, the, some industries are worse off than others. So if, if they've got big exposure to that, it's it's sort of prudent to to you know, expect some sort of you know nasty sort of um, situation for for these businesses to go through. And you know, can they actually afford to pay back their loans? Um, so, so amongst the other ones, so we've had ASML, which is a, a supplier to computer chip makers. It's come out with um, yeah, a massive jump in profit. So you, you'd immediately expect this is to be to be good news. But actually, the, the market was expecting even more. So it, it's disappointed on that front. Um, and then, you know, in the coming days, we've got Netflix, Johnson & Johnson, Ericsson. And then next week on the UK market, we've got Unilever. So you know, this is a company that makes things like um, Marmite and PG Tips. So you would, you would have thought all the things that we, we've been happily munching on and drinking during lockdown, theoretically, they might have done quite well. But um, you, you, you just, just don't know. Nothing is, nothing's for certain at the moment, really. So. And I guess Unilever is also a big supplier of lots of different cleaning products as well, isn't it? Which might have seen a spike, particularly in early lockdown. Yeah, so you know we we've seen people like Reckitt Bankaiser, um, one of the big cleaning product companies, um, already sort of talk about how it's seen this big surge in sales. I think what's quite interesting is whether people have bought masses of stuff like um, you know big boxes of tea bags, loads of cleaning products at the start of lockdown, when everyone was sort of fearful and you know stockpiling goods and well, they're still going through it. And I certainly know um, I've got a massive bag of stuff, which um, you know, things like washing detergent and things like that, that just I thought would disappear really quickly, but it hasn't at all. Um, but yeah, it, but maybe cups of teas are probably a different thing. I don't know. Depends on how many are you making a day, Laura, stuck at home? Ten a day? I'm not a massive tea drinker. Probably one a day. I'm not very British. Oh dear, that's not good. So, <laughs> <laughs> so a box of tea bags that last me a whole year. Oh my god! I mean, I've, I drink, I'm drinking tea like nobody's business. So it's, it's um, yeah, constantly having to to stock up again. So Just on... purely to prop up Unilever's profits <laughs> to keep them going. <laughs> well, actually, no. I must confess, I haven't been buying their products. So. Uh... Uh, on the tea side of things so, so also on the u.s market we've had tesla shares up more than 250 percent this year including massive rally in the past few weeks um, how does that work how does a pandemic mean that more people are buying teslas well this is it you know it's there is a sort of a fear of missing out the fomo um sort of experience where i think people are just seeing it and they're rushing to say well if that's going up i want more and more and more um and really they're, they're chasing something when there's sort of there's been no massive breakthrough on news of um that, that could to warrant this extra sort of valuation of a business there's a service in america called robin hood which is a, a share dealing service um and you know reports suggest that the, the number of people holding Tesla stock through Robin Hood has has doubled since the start of June to nearly half a million, um, and, and Bloomberg's talking about how there's ten thousand day traders an hour buying Tesla stock at the moment. So it's it, it you know at some point um, reality has to uh, return, and you know people are saying well, what why am I sort of possibly buying this stock? Is you know is it overvalued? 
you know the argument is that they you know it's not simply a car electric car maker it's a tech play it's a battery play and you know i, th- I think people are just rushing around trying to justify reasons why it can keep going up again and it's it, it's crazy it really is um, and i guess but- we've seen during the pandemic we've seen tech stocks do particularly well and a lot of those are in the us so us tech stocks have done very well and so there's an element where i guess it's been swept up along with that with people then trying to chase those returns as well yeah, tech, tech has been, you know, on the whole, quite a good place to have been invested in this year. Now, Bank of America does a survey every month with fund managers. And its latest survey just come out and it says almost three quarters of all the people it surveyed describe the tech sector as the most crowded trade. So so by this, they're sort of saying we're a bit worried. There's too many people in here, um, you know, if, it, if it's too many people in what concentration in one area, then perhaps that would suggest all the good money's been made. Um, and so what they're, what they're actually doing, they're looking they're looking at other places. There's an increase in interest in European stocks. Now, I was having a chat with a colleague who, who's his theory is that um, it's not because Europe's cheaper. It's certainly, you know, European indices have, have lagged US ones in terms of the market, stock market this year. But there's actually quite a few tech names in Europe, and really they've chased all the one the tech names in in America, and now they're just chasing all the tech names in Europe. So um, it, it's interesting. But you know, at the start you mentioned about the election. Well, another reason that perhaps Europe is um, starting to attract a bit more attention from investors is, um, you know, if Joe Biden wins the U.S. presidential election, then he could actually be negative for US stocks. So I, I wonder if there's some money being sort of reallocated to a different geography um, because of concerns about America. So he's he's talking about reversing some of Trump's tax policies. So Don Trump got elected, um, came in and sort of cut taxes for, for individuals, cut taxes for businesses. Um, so with that, you know, businesses used the money that they were saving to to either the buyback shares, so they were they essentially being their own buyer of stock, pushing up the price, um, or they were doing it to to hire more people, to expand, to make acquisitions. And so, you know, if, if Biden gets in, there's potentially taking all these sort of catalysts away, um, and you know, earnings are forecast to you know, fall by quite a bit, more than ten percent potentially next year. Uh, amongst all the S&P 500 companies, according to, to some analysis by one of the big investment banks. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's you know, this is bubbling away at the moment. And, and the polls that the, really have suggesting that Biden has a lead. So I think people should be paying a bit more attention to the implications if he does does get elected. And we always bang on about the fact that markets don't like uncertainty. And I guess the potential for a change in president um, and the potential for not knowing which way the election is going to go brings in uncertainty and that might be the catalyst that might be enough for some investors at the moment to just move out of that market and avoid it particularly as it's gone up so much i mean lots of investors will have gains to bank there won't they definitely but one area where we're not quite sure about biden's policies is actually in tech so he has come out and said um, he thinks that big tech companies should be paying more tax and it shouldn't really be run just for shareholders. It should be run for communities and, and workers as well. Um, so you know, I, I think any any whoever's the president is going to be sort of cl- wants to clamp down on big tech. They seem an obvious target. So um, 
Yeah, so at, at the moment, I think it's, you know, if, if he keeps having this lead in the polls, you know, his policies on tax are pretty clear. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised to see, um, you know, a rotation of money into other territories. But, you know, if you think, well, does that mean the UK is going to get much more? Well, we've got Brexit to sort out still, haven't we, and trade deals. So it's, um, you know, investing is never easy. Um, I think lots of people perhaps buying Tesla shares at the moment think it is. <laughs> it's very easy, but, you know, it, it, it really is not. So, uh, yeah. And it's probably well, worth pointing out as well that Tesla, um, while investors might not own it directly, um, there are a few big um, UK funds that actually own it as well. So Scottish Mortgage is one example. Um, that's a very popular investment trust that has a stake in Tesla. And there'll be other fund managers that have stakes in it as well. So um, while you might dismiss that story as something that doesn't affect you, investors might actually have exposure to it without realising. Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, it's. I think you'll find that global funds will have exposure to lots of these tech companies. If they want to try and beat the market, they're going to make sure that they need to, to have some exposure to that area um, and then find something on top in which to sort of speed ahead. So, yeah, definitely want to have a, have a, have a dig around your, your sort of portfolio to try and make sure you understand what's in any funds that you own. So elsewhere on the UK stock market, um, there's been some bit of news. So Halma has been one of the big success stories over the last few years. Um, very strong returns for shareholders uh, actually over the last decade. But it's reported its 17th year of record profits and revenue and says, unfortunately, they won't be, this won't extend to 18 years because we're expecting profits to, to dip slightly. Um, um, Ocado has come out and said, you know, surprise, surprise, that lots of people have been ordering food online via its platform. But actually, it's still loss-making because... You know, don't forget, it's it's not simply just um, a van turning up to give you groceries. It's it's providing technology systems to other uh, supermarket chains around the world, um, and these these are very expensive to set up. These um, set up these sort of customer fulfillment centres, uh, and then ASOS has come out and said it's you know we've all been buying casual wear during lockdown. We haven't been buying formal wear and and, and dresses and, and the like. So. Um, it, it, it sort of it saved a bit of money by not having to you know, doing as much marketing, but all the products that people have been buying it hasn't been able to keep up with demand in terms of supplies. So, um, and it's also said there's still no sight of sort of society returning to normal. So whilst all the the restaurants are open, um, you know the pubs are open, I think there's still from their perspective still get the sense that we're not all rushing to go out. We're not going to you know buying clothes for for a, for a big night out. And if you are rushing to go out, then you're probably going to wear clothes that you haven't worn for months because you haven't been dressing up for months rather than buying something new. Yeah. So just before we started this recording, Laura and I were just um, comparing what how we've been venturing out of the house. And, um, you know, Laura, you, you weren't telling me about all the all the new clothes that you were buying. So I presume that you just slipped that. In the, you forgot to mention all the all the, the the millions of pounds that you've you've spent on jumpsuits and stuff. <laughs> I do quite like at the moment though that if you spend money, you can do it guilt-free because you can say that you're boosting the economy and trying to single-handedly <laughs> give the economy a push rather than just frivolously spending your cash. <laughs> yes, yeah, so that's very very true. <laughs> but no, I have not been out on a shopping spree. Oh, oh dear. Well, on to the property market now. We we've touched on this quite a bit recently. We, I mean. I don't want people to think we're turning into to mega property fans. Uh, we'll perhaps leave the the day-to-day the, the -day commentary to um, certain newspapers. But 
there's been a bit of um, an update for people who invested in property funds this week. So, Laura, what's happening there? Yeah, so um, as anyone that's invested in the funds will be keenly aware, the um, majority of the property sector, property fund sector, so those that invest directly in UK property, um, have been closed since the start of the corona crisis, uh, so been closed since March. Um, and only one of them has reopened so far, which we talked about on the previous podcast. Um, but we had an update this week from M&G Property Portfolio. So this was actually the first fund to close or to suspend, um, and it suspended in December last year, way ahead of the others suspending. Um, and it's basically because it ran out of cash to meet investor outflows. So what we saw all of last year was people pulling their money out of property funds amid worries about Brexit um, and fears of the kind of the death of the high street and the impact that that would have on property as an asset. Um, and so M&G closed as a result of that, um, suspended any dealing in it while they raise cash. And then it's continually, the regulator says that they have to update investors every 28 days to say what's happening with the fund and whether they're going to reopen. M&G have been quite good as it's gone through time in terms of giving a more detailed update for investors of how they're getting on in terms of getting the portfolio in, in shape in order to reopen. Their latest update that came out this week said that they're going to stay closed for another 28 days, which isn't really any surprise to anyone, I think. Um, but they did give an update on where they're at. So the reason that property funds closed in March, and this also impacted M&G, even though it was already closed, is that the people that value the properties determined that they couldn't find an accurate valuation for the property. There was just so much market uncertainty that they had no idea. Um, well, it's probably a bit harsh. They had uncertainty around how much a property would actually sell for. Um, parts of the market are now opening up and this latest update said that they now have clarity around pricing for central London offices and student accommodation. Um, previously, they'd already said that they've got clarity on pricing around industrial and logistics properties. So that means parts of the portfolio, they're able to get a clearer idea of, of what it's actually worth. But the disappointing news for investors is that there's still 70% of the fund's assets invested in um, property where they don't have any certainty over the value. So they've got quite a long way to go before they're able to accurately value the fund, which is one of the big steps that they need to take before they can reopen. Have you, have you ever you got any stats about what's the longest a fund has ever been suspended for? Just, I just wondered if it seems this one, you know, clearly if you're invested in this, in this one, you'd be frustrated. But I wonder if this is nothing compared to something else. Fund suspensions are a relatively new thing. So we saw them in 2016 after the Brexit referendum with property funds. Um, and the longest a fund was closed for then was the M&G fund, so the fund we're talking about now, which was closed for just over 120 days, so about four months. Um, now it's, been, it's going into its eighth month of being closed this time around. Um, Neil Woodford... It's fund suspended, obviously, and that was suspended for a long time before it was ultimately shut down. Um, so that's probably the longest that I can think of in recent history. But these fund suspensions are ha seem to have become normal in recent years, but they are not normally normal, if that makes sense. 
They're a relatively recent phenomenon. That is a, probably a more accurate way of putting it. Um, so, yeah, so the M&G fund... So it's, on one hand, it's got to solve this whole valuation issue of working out what its assets are actually worth. On the other hand, it's got to offload enough property to be able to generate cash to meet the redemptions that are inevitably going to happen when they reopen the fund. So when they reopen the fund, lots of investors will say, well, my money's been locked up for all this time. I'm sick of this. I'm moving my money elsewhere. Um, And on that front, they have not made any progress in the past month. So they say that there's still £180 million worth of property that they're trying to sell off, that they're either under offer on or they've exchanged on. But they haven't managed to sell any of that in the past month. No, oh, that's you know, it. Must be incredibly frustrating if you if you've got your money tied up like that. So, uh, yeah, not good. Not just guess it's not really good for sort of sentiment towards the property sector in general from an investment perspective, really, is it? So, no, definitely not. And and we should point out this is commercial property rather than residential property. So I know um, you mentioned that we've talked a lot about residential property before. Um, this is slightly separate from that because it's obviously very different people buying multi-million pound office blocks or retail parks than would be buying a normal home. But there are some parallels you can definitely draw between them in terms of the standstill that the market came to and the difficulty of working out where prices are going to go. Yeah. So what other news have you spotted this week then? So we've had some exciting tax news this week. Not that, normally is... words that go together. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so we had this kind of surprise announcement this week that the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, wants to look into capital gains tax. So this is the tax that you pay on any um, increases you see in your investments that aren't in an ISA or a pension, um, and any gains you make on property, uh, which isn't your main home. Um, they're the main places that people would pay capital gains tax. Um, he's announced that he wants the Office for Tax Simplification to look into how the tax can be restructured. Um, and ostensibly, you would normally get the Office for Tax Simplification to look at this, to streamline the whole process. So you'd look at things like the annual allowances and the various different caveats and, and tax breaks that are on offer and work out how to simplify the system. And, and we saw them do some similar work around inheritance tax most recently. Um, not that any of that really came to fruition. Um, but the timing of this is particularly interesting because we were talking on the podcast, I don't, can't remember if it was last week or the week before, about the fact that the government has spent a lot of money and at some point it's going to have to work out how it pays for all of this money. And so the inkling that we're all getting now is that by commissioning someone to look into capital gains tax, it's potentially a way that the Chancellor can work out where money can be raised from changing the capital gains tax system. So put bluntly, investors and people with second homes are worried that they're going to end up getting taxed more in order to pay for the corona crisis. So come autumn statement from the Chancellor, we should definitely brace ourselves for higher taxes, do you think? We're definitely going to see them at some points in the tax system. It's just where the Chancellor chooses to make those changes. And um, we did some research on where people would find it kind of palatable for taxes to increase. Um, And capital gains tax is one of the areas where people think that it's okay to increase it because 
the perception is that it's generally only paid by wealthy people. If you can afford to have investments that have made big gains outside of your ISA and pension, or if you can afford to own a, a second home or multiple properties, um, then people perceive that you're quite wealthy and therefore you can afford to pay a bit more tax at a time when the government needs to raise money to pay for the COVID-19 crisis. So do you think that they're going to push it more in line with income tax rates, which are which are higher than capital gains, aren't they? So that is one of the suggestions. So at the moment, you pay capital gains tax at 10% for basic rate taxpayers and 20% for higher and additional rate taxpayers. There's slightly higher rates when it comes to residential property. Um, but obviously, those, those 10 and 20% rates are far lower than income tax rates, which are 20%, 40%, and 45%. So one of the suggestions has been that they could simplify the system and bring... Um, that capital gains tax in line with income tax rates. And one of the other suggestions is, so in the same way with income, you have a tax-free allowance um, each year, you get an additional tax-free allowance for capital gains tax. And one of the suggestions is that, that they could be merged and you effectively lose your, your tax-free allowance for capital gains tax. So it'll be interesting to see what the Office for Tax Simplification comes up with um, and whether they report back in time for that autumn statement um, or whether this is something that then gets pushed out into budget next year. Yeah, you would have thought that the government would want to try and find a plan to sort out their, um, you know, to, how, to, how to recoup the money that they've been spending on um, sort of supporting people through through COVID crisis. So I imagine this is a priority thing for them and they would definitely want it sorted by November time. You would think so, but I guess there's a balancing act with the government in terms of when the economy and individuals and businesses are in good enough shape to be able to bear that extra tax. So if you think of a scenario where by October we're going to see that's going to be when the furlough scheme ends, and so that's when people are predicting there's going to be a big rise in unemployment at that point. Um, it might be that the, the likelihood of a second wave of the virus is looking a bit more likely at that point as we start to go into winter and it might be that the government deems that they'll make some small tweaks to increase taxes for some people but that a massive change in the taxation system and a massive increase in the burden on taxes on people it might not be quite the right time at that point because at that point we're unlikely to be fully the other side of this crisis are we no so finally we asked listeners to suggest some people they wanted us to interview on the podcast and uh, one of the listeners said, could you have a chat with the fund manager, Harry Nimmo? So you asked and we can deliver. So I spoke to the veteran smaller companies investor about why he's optimistic about certain parts of the market. Um, his love of Games Workshop and his views on some of his favourite shares at the moment. So let's take a listen to that interview now. So, Harry, small caps seem to have been left behind in the market rebound. Why do you think that is? Uh, I'd actually uh, slightly disagree with you there. Um, small caps have certainly underperformed um, large caps uh, year to date, but actually in the last three months, uh, small caps have done uh, significantly better than than large caps. I've got uh, in, the, in the last three months, FTSE up 6%, uh, FTSE 250 up 14%, small cap index, FTSE small cap index up 20% and the AIM index up a whopping 33%. So uh, they certainly went down into this um, COVID emergency harder, but they've they've come up um, 
far quickly, more quickly in percentage terms. And that's typical. Um, smaller companies uh, quite often are seen as riskier. Uh, they're more cyclical. They certainly sell off harder into a bear market. But in the recovery phase, um, they, they regain the ground they've lost quite sharply. Indeed, in the last uh, two or three years, smaller companies have been underperforming. This is typical in the lead-in to a, a, a bear market. We certainly saw it in the, the banking crisis period. But, but actually, it was a very good time to buy smaller companies right at the turning point in the banking crisis. And it may well prove to be the same in this COVID crisis. So the market has obviously been going up um, in recent months, but corporate earnings forecasts have been coming down. So I just wanted to, how long do you think that this sort of trend could last before we get another market correction? Because it does seem like um, the market is sort of not worried at all about short term earnings splits. It's focused you know, well ahead in, in, into sort of 2021 and, and beyond prospects. Okay, so it's a it's a fast moving situation, and actually we're getting a lot of updates from companies. They tend to be shorter calls, but they're cognizant that um, uh, investors need to be given some kind of uh, guidance where possible as to where earnings are going. What we saw in the in the March period, we saw many companies um, withdraw guidance, and actually they didn't really have. A particular clue as to where earnings were going. They just know, knew they were in the, in the main, many companies, not all, they were going down. So they, they withdrew guidance they, um, and analysts, as a result, were slightly in the dark and they tended to cut forecasts sharply. And many dividends were cut, as we know. But really in the last four to six weeks, there's been a bit more clarity. There's more clarity in particular on when um, the lockdown is um, is being removed, and actually, companies are telling us that things are significantly better than they were. And we're seeing quite a few companies um, actually um, sort of reinstate or talk about reinstating the dividends. We've seen earnings forecasts increase, so actually, the picture is becoming brighter as we. See more clarity, particularly in some of these these more cyclical sectors. Um, so I, I I would disagree that uh, things are going worse. Uh, we certainly saw that in February March. I think things are are getting better, and we're seeing a much more optimistic picture uh, for the for the rest of the year. And remember, stock markets look way ahead. They they look way ahead of where we are right now. And it might feel awful, but uh, we are seeing, we think, uh, light at the end of the tunnel. Okay, what, what, so what, what would you um, sort of say makes a perfect small cap investment? Okay, well, the center point of our investment process, uh, the, the quality, growth, and momentum is what we look for. High, high quality businesses in growing markets with business momentum where um, the, the outlook for the business is getting better. We also like, and this is part of quality, earnings visibility. Um, so a company knows where its revenues and profits are coming from. And clearly we didn't see much visibility 
back in, in, in February, March. But there are, were certain companies that maybe get paid annually in advance that have long-term contracts with um, with customers that sell software as a service, for instance, in, in that particular uh, sector, where they might even have a three to five year contract with their customers. This is the sort of the visibility we really like. So it's niche markets, it's quality, it's growth, it's momentum, but also businesses, let's say, that are successful in the UK that can internationalize their operations. And in these online days, it's, it's, it's far easier to internationalize your business than it was, say, uh, 10, 20, 30 years ago. So these are some of the points as we are looking for in terms of great smaller companies. What and what sort of stuff would you tend to avoid when you're looking in the small cap space? Okay, well, we're, we're particularly, um, we, we don't like oil and gas, we don't like mining, we don't like company, um, companies or sectors that are exposed to commodity prices or maybe have one mine, one uh, oil and gas um, prospect in some part of the world where the rule of law doesn't run. Um, that's the sort of thing we really don't like. Um, we don't like um, very, very cyclical businesses that are, are prone to uh, changes in the economic cycle. Um, we, we, we don't like companies with poor corporate governance uh, credentials. Uh, ESG is something we're increasingly, uh, is, is increasingly important to us, but we, we like to feel that the external shareholders are treated on a level playing field with um, internal shareholders, with founders and the like. Um, and if we don't see that, or we see evidence that there's, there's one rule for the for, for let's say the founder and his friends and another rule for for their external shareholders we won't touch that shareholding we don't like um, dual share classes either so obviously uh, over your career what would you say would be the best and worst investment decisions that you've made okay well i, I think the best one really is asos um this is one we made back in 2006 and it's a stock we held for about um for about seven years um, till about 2013 and share price went from 80 put uh, our, our average in price was about 85 pence and our exit price was was near 47 pounds so I think that was the best one for us um, other good ones in that period were Abcam and Paddy Power um, actually Hargreaves Lansdowne was a, a good listing we, we participated in that a listing and and JD Sports, and these last three stocks have actually made it all the way through into the uh, FTSE 100, and, and many of our stocks, um, oh, I wouldn't say many, but quite a few of them have gone all the way into the into the top 100. Paddy Power is now called uh, Flutter Entertainments. Uh, so those are the best ones, and and these are, are stocks that have have made more than 10 times. We've made more than 10 times our money in. Um, many of them were early um, platforms, you know, internet platforms, ASOS, Abcam, things like Rightmove, uh, Money Supermarket, Hargreaves, Lansdowne, were all online platforms. And, um, and that's, that was a, an important growth area back, if you were involved in them back in the uh, 2007, 8, 9, 10 period. In terms of worst stocks, um, well, I've only had one company go bust on me, 
and that is a company called Patisserie Holdings, which I'm sure you'll remember their, their shops. I think a few of them still exist, but it was down to um, basically um, alleged fraud um, at a, a senior level uh, within that business. And it, it ceased, uh, it, the share price was suspended on that announcement. So there was no time to, to exit that stock. So that's the only only company that um, we've ever invested in that has, has actually gone under while we've owned, owned the shares. Yeah, what, so what, in the current portfolio, I see that you've got Games Workshop. So um, obviously that's had a really good run. Do, do, can you just give me an outline? Why why do you like that business? And do, just sort of get an idea of where you think that the sort of the, the shares have already had their best run and it might be harder for them to go up or whether you disagree with that view. Okay, well, um, one of the, the um, techniques we use, um, it sounds a bit crass, but um, we, like to, we like to run our winners, very much so. And we, like a, we actually like a share price chart that goes from the bottom left to the top right-hand side of the page. And, I mean, that sounds a bit daft, but when you get business momentum and a, and a company going in the right direction, um, this quite often continues for actually for many, many years. And quite often these companies have good earnings revisions momentum. Now, what that's all about is there's all these analysts, outside analysts that are maintaining forecasts and for the next couple of years. And this, they always, well, they tend to make an assumption uh, about a technique called mean reversion. They say that no company can maintain a, a competitive advantage for an extended period and that there is a fade rate as competitors rush in and, and take away that advantage. Well, we contend that that's not actually the case, that a company can maintain a competitive advantage for an extended period. We see it all the time and we track earnings revisions momentum earnings forecasts that are being raised consistently. And that's certainly been the case with Games Workshop. I mean, Games Workshop has been around for a long, long time. They're a Warhammer tabletop game, hobby gaming product. Uh, it had a glory day about 15 years ago, and then it's, uh, it rather went to sleep. And a new management came along about six, seven years ago, really turned it around, made it fit for the internet uh, age in terms of the sales and promotion of the product. Uh, it's a vertically integrated business. It's a niche market. Um, it's quite a, it's mainly sort of teenage uh, boys and, and young adults that are, are involved in this. But it's it's got a very strong fan base. And that fan, fan base isn't just um, in the UK. It's They've developed their market internationally into the US, into Europe, uh, and now into the Far East. They also, they're, they're vertically integrated. They, um, they manufacture everything. They manufacture everything in Nottingham, actually. And they sell, they have their shops, they have their online platform, online distribution. And, and th th this means that actually profit margins are, are high and cash generation is, is very, very strong. And they can reach uh, their, they've got a, a strong online presence. They can reach their, their client base, their loyal client base. Uh, very, very easily. And they're, uh, they have influencers or they, they, they work with influencers to, to have a look at their new new games as they come in, new versions, and um, 
give give their views on that. And they're they're very good at um, at providing this information about Warhammer to their their clients. So it's a it's a very strong model. And actually, we only bought the shares. The shares had already doubled when we bought them about two years ago, and then they of course they've doubled again. So just because a share has gone up a lot doesn't mean it's going to stop going up. Um, quite often that virtuous circle uh, continues for, for an extended period. So it, I suppose it's done so well. It's, um, it's, it's one of our top three holdings at the moment. And the exciting part now is that uh, actually um, they are in talks to produce films and uh, video games uh, and the like that can, they can really exploit the intellectual property they have in Warhammer. Uh, and that, I think, is the, the next leg in the success of, of Games Workshop. Very conservatively run business, very strong cash generation, great brand, great product, loyal customer base. So I also noticed in your portfolio, you've got the media company Future. Um, so this uh, this business has been sort of targeted by short sellers who, who sort of publishing report um, claiming that there's lots of things wrong with the business and, and, and if the share price fell that they would they would profit from that. I mean when one of your holdings is sort of attacked in this way would you ever sort of pay close attention to what sort of these, these shortest are, are doing or would you just dismiss what they're what they're on about? Oh no of course we'd um, um, take um, take a look at what they were saying and and judge where whether they were correct. I mean, clearly there have been examples where um, um, short cell research has uh, actually had substance, but um, you know, they're just, um, it's, it's, like, it's research like <clears throat> any other research, um, you know, it can be wrong. And um, uh, I suppose the, 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 the research on the negative research in future came out about uh, a year or so ago, and there were several earnings uh, statements since then, lots of conversations with uh, management, lots of clarification, and um, you know the shares have gone basically on onwards and up, so, uh, upwards. We we haven't found any uh, um, substance, and investors haven't found any substance to um, to to what has been uh, what has been said by the the short seller. And actually, been, there have been other cases, uh, Boohoo and. Um, uh, um, first derivatives um, where there have been uh, short, short selling attacks and actually they amounted to nothing. Um, so, um, we, you know, we're alive to it, we uh, pay attention to it, but um, um, thus far we've found that, um, you know, short sellers have been wrong uh, as often as they've been right. Uh, actually, I, I'm, I mean, quite honestly, um, I'm always shorting stocks. You're effectively selling something you don't own. I mean, would you would you sell a car or a house that you didn't own? I, I, I'm not so sure it's um, uh, terribly ethical behaviour myself. And even lending stock, uh, I'm not um, you know not terribly comfortable with um, uh, passive funds facilitating uh, short selling. It's a it's a murky business, but um, it's certainly it's there. It's uh, it's apparently legal. We have to pay attention to it and make sure that our research is is diligent. So this year, how how has your portfolio changed? Were you buying stuff um, when the market sold off, or uh, have you sort of reappraised any holdings, thinking actually 
we shouldn't be now holding that because of the what's going on in the world um we uh what, what we've been doing we haven't changed anything we 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 um keep our process our our quality growth and momentum led investment process and we have a, a matrix a screening process that um, has been the basis of our investment process for over 20 years now really since since i launched the fund back in in january 1997 and but what we have to do is a uh, we, we sell down uh, stocks that move out of smaller companies and become too large and uh, replace them with the, the new um, smaller companies as they uh, come through. Um, and so the, uh, a few names that have been, been selling um, this year have been Decra Pharmaceuticals, Abcam uh, and Fever Tree Drinks. It's not because we um, don't like these companies uh, necessarily, it's, it's just because they're they're, they're too big. They, you know, there are three, four, five billion pound companies. And um, what we have been doing is, is buying into, into smaller businesses. Some are uh, medium sized companies. Funnily enough, um, AJ Bell was one of the stocks that we, uh, we bought recently. We are very keen on, on investment platforms, actually, um, the, the leading ones. And another one we've been buying was um, uh, in, in, Integrafin, which owns the, the Transact. Um, Business to business, uh, business to wealth manager uh, uh, platform. Um, we see these as um, having very um, visible earning streams um, and uh, very strong relationships with their growing uh, customer bases. They're also benefiting from the transition from paper based services to online services, and that's still uh, a very strong feature of our fund. Uh, other ones we bought are uh, Team 17. This is it's now a very large holding with, with us. It's a it's a video gaming uh, a company, a producer, pay-to-play games, the sort of thing you get on your uh, mobile phone. And clearly, they've been having a you know, very good time in the um, in the um, in the COVID uh, emergency downturn. But actually, what we think is that this emergency has has accelerated change. So processes that were taking some years to occur are, are actually going to happen very much more quickly. So uh, that's benefiting Team 17. It's run by this lady called Debbie Bestwick, a very impressive businesswoman uh, based in Wakefield, and she is an MBE for services to the, to the gaming industry. So um, these are a few examples of uh, stocks that, um, that we've, been, uh, we've been buying into uh, recently. And, and so, but no change in process. Yeah. Is, is there one small cap stock that you're most excited about at the moment? OK, well, it's, um, it's a stock, uh, again, that we've held for uh, two, three years and it's called it's called um, uh, Global Global Data. And this is a, it's a business that provides um, kind of mission critical uh, research across a range of business verticals and it provides it online and it provides data that can be interrogated and um, information and knowledge um, is everything here and the internet has um, turned up uh, massive amounts of data and uh, global global data package it uh, as, as, as market research uh, and sell it on to um, 
uh, verticals like uh, pharmaceutical companies, construction companies, uh, retailers, oil and gas companies, a whole whole range of verticals. Um, and what they do is they um, the subscribers pay annually in advance for this information, several thousand pounds, I believe, uh, because it's so important to the business of the client that they need it. And they're not going to suddenly um, dump their um, subscription because there is a is a downturn. So and because it's paid um, annually in, or in advance, um, you know, global data has the money in advance. It's not going to wait for its money. And sometimes these contracts are, are even long, longer. It's run by this gentleman called Mike Danson. And Mike Danson uh, used to uh, was a founder and owner of a company called Data Monitor which we was at one stage our largest holding uh, about 12 or 13 years ago. He sold the business on to um, to Informa, actually. Uh, I don't know if Informa still exists. It's maybe he's changed his name. But uh, in, in recent years, he's recreated what his market research company, but this time it is uh, ready. It's internet and online enabled, and that is global data. And it's now about a must be uh, 1,200 million market cap these days. It, um, it's actually AIM listed, um, but we, we know the individuals behind it. It's a global business. It's a growth business. And we've seen several businesses uh, um, internationally like this. So this mission critical data is very important. And we own um, some of these sorts of companies in our, our global smaller companies fund. It's a very high quality source of revenue and um, lots and lots of visibility, which is a thing we like too. So that's global data. Okay, well, Harry, thank you ever so much for talking through the wonderful world of small caps. It's been brilliant having you on the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks a lot for listening this week. Remember, you can listen to us on Spotify, on the iPhone podcast app, or on Podbean. And to do so, just search for Money and Markets. Um, and if you want to, please do leave a review of us wherever you listen to your podcast as it helps other people find us. And we will see you next week. See you later. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.